In 2017, the Hammer Museum presented an exhibition called Radical Women, exploring the outstanding work created by Latin American and Latina artists between the period of 1960 to 1985. Featuring 123 artists from 15 countries, Radical Women focused on these artists' use of the female body for political and social critique during this era. Curated by a team of female curators across several institutions, including Cecilia Fajardo-Hill and Catherine Morris, among others, the exhibition traveled to the Brooklyn Museum in 2018 and is currently on view at the Pinacoteca Sao Paulo, closing November 19th. Featured prominently in the exhibition was the image of a young woman who took a self-portrait when she was 32 years old in 1973. The right side of the woman's face is intersected by a rectilinear shape, which completes itself as a square on the white wall behind her. The portrait is called Untitled, and it was taken by someone I met up with recently. My name is Liliana Porter. I am a visual artist. The photo was taken almost 10 years after Liliana had left Buenos Aires at the age of 22 to come to New York City. It was fantastic to be that age and to arrive to New York in a moment where New York was beginning to be the center. So a lot of artists were coming from Germany, from England, all over. And also it was a fantastic experience to go to the museums because in Argentina I studied art and history of art through reproductions. And suddenly you go to the Metropolitan and you see the real stuff and it's incredible. I was really ready at 22 to really take advantage Mm -hmm. of what I was seeing. New York was like a feast because you had everything you wanted. And I was aware we had everything. I think I had an advantage to people who were born in New York, they took for granted. To make an etching in a plate that was already polished was like, oh my God. Arriving in the 1960s in New York, in the wake of the machismo of the ABEX movement, I asked Liliana if she felt that her opportunities were equal compared to the male artists of her generation. Let's say there was a group show and they were all men. You didn't even think about it. And now you are super aware. Until you are aware, you cannot really act. Probably if I compare my career with the men of the same level, I think men had many more opportunities. In the spirit of radical women, she worked to resist the systemic sexism. The whole movement started with consciousness raising groups to make you conscious, not only in art, but what is your role in your house? Why do you have to cook and the guy had to sit there waiting for you to bring the coffee? You never thought of that. You took it for granted that was that way. Things started to change when you were aware that could be different. So she connected with other radical women. The AIR was very important. I knew Lucy Lippard and May Stevens, and I was a friend of Anna Mendieta, so I was in touch with that. But I was not really, I have to confess, very active. I was into my work, you know. Making your work. Yeah, yes. (laughs) She was more into making work in the studio and speaking through her art. But I asked Liliana if she thought of herself as a radical woman. I started to see my own work in different eyes with that title. Mm -hmm. What happens when you are young and doing those things, it seems natural. Then in perspective, you have more understanding of how your mind was working. I thought that it was radical. (laughs) It was okay. For the Untitled podcast, I asked Liliana to reflect on the piece in the show, Untitled. The title was Untitled with Square, I think, or I don't know if I added with Square later. 
the idea of the untitled that many, many of my pieces, especially from the 60s and 70s, didn't have titles because the idea was not to limit it with the description that will limit the perception of the meaning to make it more open. Which reiterates the idea that less is more. But the absence, it occupies as much space as the presence. And finally, I asked her about the power of her work and how many pieces are often viewed as self-portraits. It's a self-portrait of everybody because it's a little the metaphor of doing something that is beyond your possibilities, but you still have faith and continue working. Hello, and welcome to the Untitled Art Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Schmidt. Untitled Art Podcast is the new iteration of Untitled Radio, a program that innovates upon the customary art fair talks by providing a different dynamic and depth for interviews and panel discussions, adding performances, audio-based artwork, music, and playlists by artists, curators, and art world professionals presented live at the Untitled Art Fairs in Miami Beach and San Francisco. Many people said 2017 was the year of the woman. They say it's the year that women fought back. Women's marches, the Me Too movement, We Are Not Surprised, Pink Pussy Hats, and more. A lot was accomplished, and even more remains to be done. Glass ceilings need to be shattered. Laws and regulations upheld, created, or enforced, and cultures changed. The traumatic backdrop of this massive societal mobilization is the missed opportunity to put a woman in the White House for the very first time instead of a misogynist pig as our president, someone who is proud of his own abuses and thinks, and vocally proclaims, that we are nasty. Women came and women roared, nasty indeed, This episode looks back on four years of contributors to Untitled Radio who have the double X chromosome and a triple X threat. 2017 was a year of women taking their bodies, their voices, and their workplaces back and saying we will not be silenced, we will not be your triple X fantasy, and we will not sign our emails with sweet X's and O's. We are XX double X. Hey there, I'm chiming in post-recording. I recorded this episode before Radiolab released their fantastic series on gonads, and in particular, the episode titled X and Y, where the host of the show, Molly Webster, provides vital and in-depth reporting that dispels the idea that if you're born with two X chromosomes, you're female, and if you're born with an X and a Y chromosome, you're male. As it turns out, our relationship to genetic material and physical sex is much more dynamic and complicated than we may have thought. I use XX in this episode as a metonymical stand-in for the embodiment of the feminine. I ardently believe that it's important to approach our knowledge of genetic chromosomes from more perspectives, and I want to give a thanks to the hard work of the producers at Radiolab and the Gonad series. Really, I encourage you all to go listen to it. It's an excellent series, and since you already listen to podcasts, tune in after you're done with this one, XX. We'll explore this episode, XX, in eight chapters. And to start with, we'll jump right into chapter one, La Donne Immobile. La Donne Immobile, La Donne 
attento e di pensiero e di pensiero e di pensiero Radical Women Mujeres Radical Many of the women featured in this episode of the podcast are indeed that. Liliana Porter's work has been exhibited multiple times at Untitled, and we were honored to have her join us to examine one of the iconic works in this exhibition, which is now on view at the Pinacoteca Sao Paulo. Interlaced throughout the rest of the podcast is her own rendition of the aria La Donna Immobile, created in collaboration with Uruguayan composer Sylvia Meyer. Sylvia is really a genius in music, and she has a wonderful voice. This aria from Rigoletto is perhaps one of the most recognizable melodies in opera history, although it takes on a different tone once the lyrics are translated and focused on. It goes, Woman is flighty, or unstable, depending on the translation. Like a feather in the wind, she changes her voice, her tone, her mind. She's always sweet, has a pretty face, But whether in tears or in laughter, she is always lying. Chapter 2 Macho Loco. In January 2018, we invited the Institute for Contemporary Art San Jose to air a selection of music and sound art from their recent exhibition, Sonic Futures. Included in their playlist was the song Macho Intellectual by Invasorix, a group interested in songs and performative presentations as a form of queer feminist protest. Invasorix questions gender roles and dreams alternate or utopian ways of being. In this song, we get their insight on what it is like to work or study as a woman in a man's world. No puedes 
fundimos la fraternidad con ambición y rivalidad. Aquí quién es, aquí quién es, quién es la macho intelectual. Estamos hartas de competir, de autosabotear, de abusos de poder. No me vendo, no me exploto, no me dejo chamaquear, no te escondas, no te hagas, no te dejes censurar. song, Inva Sorek speaks about a macho intellectual who studied Foucault, who watched and punished, and who wanted to dominate, humiliate, scare, harass, bend, and break his female students. They speak of the self-righteous macho intellectual artist collaborator who spoke to them of anarchy and polyamory, who ultimately couldn't listen and wouldn't stop talking. A full music video to accompany this song is available on their website. Chapter 3. Fight Like a Girl In 2016, one of Untitled Radio's regular contributors, Kathy Bird, invited the artist and activist Zoe Buckman to speak about her work, which often addresses women's and civil rights. In their discussion, Zoe expresses that she feels like women in America are now, alluding to Trump's then-recent election, very much in fight mode. Buckman is also an avid boxer, and often boxing iconography, as well as gynecological instruments, find their way into her work to further symbolize and valorize what it means to fight like a girl. In much of Buckman's work, she is reminded of times in her life in which she was made to fight for her rights as a woman, either physically, discursively, emotionally, or intellectually. In their interview, Zoe begins to describe an experience that she had with an Indian spiritual leader who came to visit New York. Rather than providing spiritual guidance, however, he had exuded misogynistic, xenophobic, and racist discourse. What follows is a poem where Zoe reflects on her thoughts regarding her fraught and disappointing interaction with this man, Swami G. The sluggish Swami sat slumped on my brethren's sofa just south of 117th Street. Dressed in orange puma gear, his chubby upper lip was sprinkled with wispy hairs that I'm sure were feeling quite scared of this chilly January blitz. He looked about 19. He looked bored. He looked like he was less than keen. But he asked me why I'd come to see him. And I decided to yet again be ingratiating. Why? Because he was in all orange and I was in jeans. Cha, you should know better, Buckman, I say to myself whenever I replay this fucking scene. So I sit there. And I tried to respectfully explain that I found some of yesterday's talk difficult to maintain. I mean, amazing, of course, what with him being so wise and well-taught and us being so keen and hungry for the knowledge and so pleased that he's come to visit us and chosen our group of enthusiasts to impart some of his wisdom to. Of course, I'm honoured, Swamiji, I said, but I do. I do find some of it hard to wrap my head around because, of course, I'm a woman a Western woman, and I'm afforded certain freedoms. And so it's difficult for me to receive some of the teachings you were teaching, you see, because, well, some of them, Swamiji, just some of them sort of seem to pitch women below men. That's all, really. I mean, respectfully. And then the sluggish Swami leant forward. 
and began to recite what I can only call the most racist, sexist, xenophobic rhetoric I've ever heard anyone spit in the flesh. Like, yeah, I've read backwards shit and I've seen it on the telly and all the rest, but I've never sat inches away from someone who was actually trying to say that in his village, women must stay in the home or else they'll be raped by Muslims. And whilst in the home, it's better for them to cook and clean because women can't possibly receive the same spiritual fruit as men because they bleed each month. And the pain of the menstrual cycle is not conducive to learning the Vedas, which is basically the Hindu Bible. And because I am my mother's daughter, and because I am my grandmother's granddaughter, and because I'm my father's daughter, and because I'm my daughter's mother, and because I am sister to my brothers, I challenged him. Like, I really tried to challenge this stupid, now slightly sweaty, sluggish Swami. And as I did, I began to get a little sweaty myself. And as I went round, and round in cycles with the imbecilic, completely ridiculous wannabe Rishi, I realised that I wasn't actually sweating at all, you see. I was bleeding in my jeans on my brethren's sofa just south of 117th Street. I was the walking proof of a Western woman who had exercised her right to choose. And they told me I should probably expect some bleeding but my mind had always been two steps ahead of my body and my body had been holding on so I hadn't experienced anything other than the weight of our decision, the relief and the grief of it. But in that moment, sat on that sofa, I smiled for the first time in a week and I let the ramblings of this unfortunate, ignorant, infantile boy blow away with the Harlem wind. And I thought to myself, I'm going to be here in the spring. Zoe then talks about an upcoming project, which, since this was originally recorded in 2016, is now finished and was presented in 2017. But Zoe shares information about a mural that she had collaborated on with Natalie Frank. It was presented as a mural in the New York Live Arts Ford Foundation, live gallery space, and was created in response to the election of Donald Trump. The mural presented texts from statements that formerly and currently elected male politicians have made about women and their bodies over the last few years. Zoe shared these statements live on our radio program. Rape is kind of like the weather. If it's inevitable, you should just relax and try and enjoy it. <gasps> these are elected officials. They're it's not choking. even it's, it's so shocking. They're not even yeah. just crazy dudes in their deck chairs mouthing off like these are men who have power. That's one. You've got the pretty well-known statement that says, if it's a legitimate rape, the female body has ways to just shut that whole thing down. And he's talking about pregnancy that's the result of rape. It's you, also the one about our... The yep, woman. course, grab him by the... Are we allowed to say that? No. Yes. Yeah. You can yeah, say you, whatever you, um, you want. Grab him by the pussy. God, if she wasn't able to satisfy her husband, yes, how yes, could she be president? Yeah, if Hillary Clinton couldn't satisfy her husband, what makes her think she can satisfy America? Donald oh, my Trump God. It's outrageous. Donald Trump. Yeah, Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Also, from Donald Trump, you could see she had blood coming out of her eyes, blood coming out of her whatever. Oh, no. Oh, my God. It's right? unbelievable. Oh, my God. Yes. Um, then there's, there's just one more that I want to share, which is it's something to be effective. Even if a pregnancy is the result of a rape, I believe that it is something that God intended. 
Oh, actually, I just remembered, I think, possibly the worst one. I'm so sorry to ramble on. I think this is the worst one. This is a politician in, I think, Maine said, um, if a woman has the right to an abortion, why shouldn't a man have the right to exercise his superior strength against women and force himself on her? At least in that case, rape doesn't usually result in someone's death. Chapter 4. She booked an Uber. In the spring of 2016, the painter Anna Ostoya was preparing for an exhibition titled Slain, which would exhibit a series of abstracted canvases deploying images from Artemisia Gentileschi's iconic rendition of Judith Slain Holofernes. The night before the exhibition, Anna took two paintings back to her studio to retouch the edges before their debut at the gallery. A few months later, in the annual fiction issue of The New Yorker, the author Ben Lerner published a story about a supposedly fictional New York-based painter named Sonia who lost two paintings that she left in an Uber the night before her exhibition opening. I knew Anna, and I knew this story. I did not know Ben, an author whose books I had read and very much enjoyed, but was absolutely shocked to read in the pages of this short story a narrative that sounded so familiar to the truthful story of my friend Anna. Not completely knowing whether or not Anna was a collaborator or a willing muse, an accomplice or a passive subject, I invited her onto Untitled Radio to read the story, and in a way, to retell this event in her own words. What follows is a snippet of the short story. The full version by Ben Lerner is accessible with The New Yorker, and Anna's full reading is available on the Untitled Radio archives. As we headed south on the West Side Highway, Sonia pointed out the clouds over the Hudson, the vermilion they were turning in the sunset, like blood in cotton. And since it was the first thing she had said that wasn't about the lost paintings, I thought it was a good time to introduce the idea that we might not recover them, by which I meant there was no way we were going to. She nodded, but didn't speak. And I started to talk, just to feel the air, really, about the stories I love that involve ruined paintings, or missing paintings, or unmade paintings. Henry's James, the Madonna of the Future, for instance, in which Theobald, who has been working on his masterpiece for decades, turns out to have produced nothing while his model aged. A blank canvas. Or the Balzac story, the unknown masterpiece, to which Sonia introduced me, and which, unlike me, she could read in French. The painter, Frenhofer, overworks his masterpiece until the canvas is just a vortex of color in which a single pair foot is legible. There are two things, I said to Sonia, who had leaned her forehead against the window, whose eyes might have been shut, that intrigue me about these stories in particular. First, how these failed paintings seem to anticipate modern art. Theobald's white canvas, as various people have noted, is like a Robert Ryman. Frenhofer's messy canvas, a premonition of post-impressionism, Cézanne, Frenhofer, c'est moi. 
But second, I said, as we passed the new Whitney, which loomed in the advancing twilight like a beached ocean liner made of steel and glass, these stories are really opportunities for the authors to assert the superiority of their own art of literature over painting. James's or Balzac's words can describe paintings the crazy artists can't actually paint, or intuit canvases that were as of yet unpainted, unpaintable. And isn't it really true of all ecrastic literature, fiction and poetry, that even when it claims to be describing or prizing a work of visual art, it is in fact asserting its own superiority? Your students are very lucky, Sonia said flatly, as she received and responded to a text. I couldn't tell if she was making fun of me. Moving on to chapter five, we'll listen to some bad gals. During the sixth edition of Untitled Miami Beach in 2017, we invited Carne from Bogota and Kilometro from San Juan, who presented a playlist called Poetry Without Poets, exploring the effects of trap and reggaeton music in the global scene. Today, we're going to air songs by three artists from this playlist, including Bad Gyal, the trap queen from Barcelona, Laguni Changa, a Miami native who presents feminist trap, and finally from Miss Nina from Madrid, who is recognized as a reggaeton feminist. The music created by these women is empowering, sex-positive, bold, and strong. Oh, 
lo hago despacio. We've arrived at chapter six, Like a Virgin. Many times on Untitled, we've invited independent writers and publishing houses to contribute their work through live readings on the radio broadcast. Twice during the fair, we've invited Badlands Unlimited, a publishing house founded by Paul Chan, to present readings of work from New Lovers, a series of short erotic fiction. In 2016, the curator and writer Catherine Taft read a selection from Elle Bedell's I Would Do Anything for Love. In this section, Catherine reads from a chapter in which a high school student named Cecily discovers her sexuality for the first time. He knows, Cecily says, as she flails her hands in front of her, attempting to dry her wet nail polish. A magazine falls off the bed and displays an ad for eyeshadow. Who knows what, Liz scours her bag for gummy bears looking for a red one. She pops an orange gummy bear into her mouth. Mike A, he knows I'm a virgin. That's why he wouldn't go all the way with me. That's why he hasn't said a word to me since spring break. Cecily blows on her neon green fingertips. My virginity is just like radiating from me. No amount of perfume can cover up essence of virgin. Boys know if you've done it before. They just know. She blows on her fingers with more force. Essence of virgin, Cecily, Jesus Christ, Liz sighs. No, Liz, Mary, she's the virgin. Cecily retorts, now fanning her arms like a windmill. Anyways, I found this guy's card. She nods her head in the direction of her desk, motioning to Liz to retrieve the card. This guy provided a service for girls in my situation. He takes your virginity just for a small fee of $50. He's a professional. He makes it quick and painless, in and out, done deal. Wait, Liz says. She sits up from Cecily's bedroom floor. Girls pay this guy to have sex with him? Yes, yeah, Cecily replies. He's a professional. I hear he's very good, the best in all of Braxton County. Look at his card. Where did you find that card? In the locker room at school, Cecily explains. There's a huge stack of them in there. Liz reluctantly examines the card with an embossed red rose. She flips it over. Mike B, professional de-virginizer. Deflower in less than an hour, guaranteed. Discounts available upon special request. Oh yeah, he seems legit. And only 50? I guess that's a fair price. Liz flips the card over again. This must have been expensive to make. I wonder if I'll ever have my own business cards. I know, right? I just have to do it. Cecily swings her hands beside the table. Crap, I smudged my nails. I read if you hold a cold glass bottle, under your, then your nails will dry faster, Liz says as she chews some more gummy bears. In the kitchen, Cecily puts two bottles of Stella Atois from the refrigerator. I don't even know why my mom has these. She only drinks vodka, Cecily says idly. Liz pulls a bowl of leftover ground beef and hamburger helper from the microwave and stirs the reheated meal with a spoon. That guy she was seeing last fall drank beer, Edward or whatever. That's probably why she still has those beers. Whatever happened to him anyway? He went back to his wife in an attempt to deflect Liz's attention from the bowl of chopped meat. Cecily shakes the cold beer bottles like maracas. Shall we? Cecily Scott, it's 4 p.m. on a Monday. Liz blows on a spoonful of hamburger helper. Whatever, we're 15 now. We're basically adults. Cecily cracks open Estella. You've only been 15 for a month. Liz takes another bite of leftovers, pauses, and places the bowl on the kitchen counter. Fine, if you're doing it, so will I. God cease. The two best friends of six years clink their bottles together and take a sip. Ew, they say in unison. They pour the remaining beer down the sink and toss the bottles into the recycling bin. I've got to get home for dinner, Cecily. Is your mom working late again? Liz asks as she washes her bowl in the sink. Yeah, I think she finally closed the deal on the Cedar Street house. It's about time. It's been on the market for months. She should be home soon. I'll call you later. 
Cecily opens the refrigerator and closes it abruptly. Hey, Liz, Cecily proposes. Maybe this professional sex guide does discounts for two girls at a time. You interested? No, thanks, Cecily. This is all you. Think of Mike A., Liz says as she cheerfully exits. On the couch, Cecily fiercely scrubs her nails with a nail polish remover, turning her fingers a sickly shade of yellow as she retreats to the fond memory of being alone with her beloved Mike A. Spring break seems so long ago now. She knows what she has to do to win the affection of her charming prince. She must be deflowered. I'd like to solve the puzzle, Pat. A Wheel of Fortune contestant states, I've got a good feeling about this. The correct puzzle letters illuminate on the television screen. It's about 90 degrees as Cicely clicks through the channels from the couch, sipping a plastic cup of vodka and cranberry juice. She's wearing stretched denim shorts and a peach tank top embroidered with pale blue flowers. Her flip-flops have fallen from her feet and lay beside the couch. For just $19.99 a month, you'll have the clear skin you were born to have, the TV suggests. The ceiling fan overhead blows the stale air around the living room. Cecily adds ice cubes to her cocktail and the doorbell rings. Cecily perks up and goosebumps cover her entire body. A vision of Mike A's perfect smile appears in her head. She opens the front door. A boy she does not recognize stands on her doorstep. He's wearing a backwards cap, tan cargo shirts, and a striped polo shirt with the emblem of an eagle on the right breast pocket. He's carrying a stately leather briefcase with gold clasp. Cecily towers over him as he is about a foot shorter than she. You must be Cecily, the boy asks. And you must be Mike B, Cecily says as Mike B enters her home. They walk into the living room. Now we're cooking, a television chef shouts as he throws more chopped garlic into a sizzling skillet. Cecily slips from her plastic cup of vodka and cranberry juice. I'm on a tight schedule. Should we make our way to the bedroom, Mike B says, clutching his briefcase. Sure, yeah, Cecily fumbles and nearly spills her drink. Do you want anything? Water, beer, hamburger helper? No, thank you, Cecily. I'm all set. At the beginning of this episode, I spoke about the crucial exhibition, Radical Women. Here, in Chapter 7, I'd like to embrace those artists following in their footsteps, including Flucked, a performance duo regularly touted as producing radical feminist choreography. In 2017, I curated an exhibition called AV, which included a sonic contribution from Flucked. What follows is a snippet from this piece, which addresses the kaleidoscopic perspective of what it feels like to live as a woman in the 21st century. Body awareness is so profoundly important because it's a window, I think, into what the mind is truly about. This is a volunteer organization that collects wedding gowns that are sewn into beautiful tiny dresses for babies that pass away and become angels too soon. I use it in the United States to train beginners, children, and this is one of the main tools that I use is a dummies. If I had if I had an actual I would have been I would have devoured, devoured by industry that has that has whatsoever. You do think too thick because you've been in this industry
health, fitness, technology. I had a dream. So we can finally agree with the others that you are indeed the world's greatest game artist. Episode 1 We've played your game now Episode 2 Episode 3 5 2 5 5 5 5 5 5 I wanted you to know that I love you Thank you for looking after my dog. Mommy, what did Daddy say? Daddy, Daddy say. The crisis we face is not embodied in the public images of the politicians who run our dysfunctional government. The crisis we face is the result of a four-decade-long, slow-motion, corporate coup d'etat that has left corporations and the war machine omnipotent. Chapter 8. Take Back the Night. In our final chapter of this episode, we'll look to Take Back the Night, alluding to the movement in which women march in protest with the mission to end sexual violence in all forms. Night, spelled with a K, also denotes a name, the name of the artist in the final chapter, the artistic collaborative duo of Autumn Knight and Chelsea Knight. We'll air a snippet of this work of sound art, which is originally 30 minutes in length, and was first aired in Miami Beach in 2016 in connection with the exhibiting gallery Chicago-based Aspect Ratio. Here, this duo addresses feminism, racism, and homophobia through reading historical accounts from their fathers, but retold in their own voices. There's a lot of nights in Georgia. Of course, you know it's an English name. I met a white guy named Claude Harold Knight. was in Vietnam together. We were both MPs, military police. We were both on a station on the main gate together for a while, right? He was all right. He was all right until, uh, until I made sergeant. Then things changed. Made sergeant before he did. We worked together for a couple of months. We were both the same rank. Both had the same last name. Okay, when promotions came down to make sergeant, they came and told him. Matter of fact, they used to call us the Black Knight 
and the white knight. When the promotions came down, they said, man, you've been promoted to sergeant. They just knew it was him. But when we got to the room and I found out I was the one that got promoted, his whole attitude changed. Follow what I'm saying? If you get my drift here. We had befriended each other. I seen what he was about. But once I made sergeant, he got real jealous. He felt like he should have automatically made sergeant before me. So his attitude changed. But overall, I wasn't bitter towards anything like that. He was the one that was bitter. That's the only one I run across named Knight. Everything was still kind of segregated. You worked on a job, then you got off the job, you turned left and he turned right. Follow what I'm saying? He went associated with his people and I went and associated with mine. It's not like we hung out together after work. His name was Claude Harold Knight. I'll never forget it. Everything west of the railroad tracks was colored town and was fairly vast. And everything east was white town. We didn't call it white town. I mean, it was just our town. But I never had any black friends my age, not one, because everything was so completely and totally segregated that I just never ran across them, except maybe for the helpers for the lawn. But usually the lawn people were adults, you know? They didn't bring young people in. It would be very rare, actually, if that ever happened. Um, so to answer your question, no, I didn't have black friends, young friends. I think as a child, it would have been fine. You know, probably would have had a good friend, somebody to run the swamps with, somebody to hunt with, because that was the way I was with my white friends. You know, we were out running the swamps, chasing after wild hogs and killing deer and, you know, whatever we could find, trapping and stuff. So it probably would have been in a venue like that. The only other way it could have happened is if they were going to my school, and I'm sure I would have had plenty of black friends, but you know it wasn't possible, so our paths never actually even crossed. And to date black women my age when I got older, living down south, that would have been very dicey, very difficult. The prejudice would have been strong. Now that I think about it, I don't think I ever would have done it. You know, unless it could have been clandestine, and that wouldn't, I don't think I ever would have done that. So would have probably been next to impossible until I was much older and living up north, where, you know, I mean, down south it was called miscegenation and there were laws about it down there. You know, you weren't allowed to marry. I don't know when those laws changed, but when I was a kid, it was very clear that that didn't happen. And then when I moved up north, it wasn't all that common either, but at least it was more accepted to see couples, black and white, together. Usually I saw white men with black women but I never had the opportunity to actually date anyone like that. What does it mean to you for us to sort of do this ventriloquism of our father's voices? What does it mean to you? I think it brings it into a sort of deeper communion with me and my sort of personal ideology. I think hearing my father's voice the cadence of, uh, and the lilt of his, his uh, description of these events, and hearing your father's voice, they almost speak in a kind of casual way, as if to negate the extreme violence of what they're both describing. I mean, differently, they speak differently. For you and I to repeat what they've said creates a kind of embodiment, and also to emphasize certain kinds of ways that the language is being employed is really useful, is really productive, and also very emotional. Also thinking about how these things age, what these narratives mean through time. These are narratives from the 1950s, 
what they mean now in the context of today's world and the context of picking an attorney general like Jeff Sessions, it means something. It means something to repeat these stories and repeat these words and repeat these experiences and hear them come out of women's voices, say, young voices, and see how they age into the future. What are your thoughts? It feels a little bit like an incantation every time I say it, almost like a song, like a song of warning in a way. Saying the story with my own voice, it feels like, did this happen to me? Because the more I say it, the more I memorize it. And so it almost becomes a memory. And then you have to have those associated feelings of a personal memory as opposed to empathy for a story that you've heard. listen through this episode, I ask you, how can a podcast address and combat misogyny? How can the production, distribution, and consumption of art do that? And more importantly, how can you? were involved in the programs we heard today, and I'd like to give a special thanks to Justin Asher and Mnemonic Recordings for producing this episode. Adrian Olivares and Vicente Solis at Winwood Radio in Miami, Aaron Harbour and Catherine from KGPC in San Francisco, Kea Duarte, our programming manager, as well as contributors to today's episode, including Liliana Porter, Silvia Meyer, Patricia Cariño Valdez at the San Jose ICA and Invasores, Kathy Bird and Fresh Art International, Zoe Buckman, Anna Ostoya, Ben Lerner, Carne and Kilometro, Mika Durand at Badlands Unlimited, Monica Mirabile and Sigrid Lauren of Flucht, David Grin, Catherine Taft, Chelsea Knight, Autumn Knight, and Jefferson Godard from Aspect Ratio. The intro and outro musical tracks on this episode were composed by Sylvia Meyer on the occasion of Rehearsal, a collaboration with Liliana Porter. And finally, to my team at Untitled Art Fairs for joining in my belief that by tuning out, you can tune in. In the Bay Area this fall, Untitled has launched our new itinerant film and video program, Untitled Cinema. Don't miss the upcoming events at the Wattis Institute with San Francisco Cinema Tech and at Minnesota Street Project with Canyon Cinema. Visit untitledartfairs.com cinema for more information. And don't forget, the seventh edition of Untitled Art in Miami Beach will open to the public on Wednesday, December 5th and remains on view until Sunday, December 10th. We look forward to seeing you on the beach. Don't let me
wrap up another episode, let's leave with the words of John Cage. Wherever we are, what we hear is mostly noise. When we ignore it, it disturbs us. When we listen to it, we find it fascinating. So I'd like to invite you to keep on listening and think of listening as another way of looking. Tune in for our next episode, which will explore what it means to be a visitor by traveling through the archives of Untitled Radio. Signing off, I'm your host, Amanda Schmidt, and I hope you'll join us again on Untitled Art Podcast. Yeah.